Well, good morning, Encounter. My name is Ryan Hansen, and I have the pleasure of serving here on the preaching team. And I could not be more excited than to wrap up our three-week series, our 70 times 7 series on forgiveness with you this week. First week, Dirk talked to us about the offenses that get put on our lives that end up being a weight for us spiritually that hold us back from walking the path that God created us to live. Last week, we talked about a spiritual framework that we can use to understand the how to forgive. And it's up on the board. And whereas the first week we talked about the why we need to forgive, the second week we talked about the how, this week I would like to talk about the what. I'd like to talk about what happens to us if we just decide not to forgive somebody. What happens to us spiritually if we decide that stewing in the pain and stewing in the feelings of betrayal and bitterness and all that that comes with unforgiving is the better option. Well, I don't want to bury the lead. I want to just start right off the bat. And my belief is that if we do not forgive people, what we are doing is planting seeds of unforgiveness in our lives that maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year, but eventually they will sprout and they will lead to fruit that will poison our futures. And I don't want that for any of us. And today what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a story of a biblical character who had been flagrantly fouled over and over and over and had successfully avoided getting those seeds of unforgiveness planted in his life. But before we do that, I just want to start off with a quick story about me. You see, in sixth grade, way back in the day, I was flagrantly fouled. See, the first day of middle school, I didn't know anybody, a new school, lots of new people, we're doing whatever. I sit down to lunch at a table all by myself because I was thinking people just come to me, right? Because that's what happens in a new place. People just, no, it didn't either. But my best friend from elementary school, the guy like we would get off at each other's houses on the bus, do that every day, you know, whatever. He walked up to me, put a piece of paper on my table, and he said, didn't say anything, he just walked away. I flipped it over, I read it, it said, I don't want to be your friend anymore, don't talk to me, don't ask why, period. I got Dear John the first day of middle school. I was flagrantly fouled by this kid. I was playing hockey at the time. I was on a hockey team. You know, you got your teammates, whatever. A few months later, I called one of the hockey team mates because we didn't have texting back then. And I said, hey, you want to hang out? You want to play video games? You want to do whatever sixth graders do? And he thought it was funny at the time. He's like, I, who are you? Pretending he didn't know me. I said, Ryan. I know a lot of Ryans and your voice doesn't sound familiar. I was like, Ryan Hansen from the hockey team? I don't know you, bye. Click. And he just thought it was funny. But he thought it was funny for like months, right? And these two flagrant fouls being so closely paired together in my life, right? They affected me. When we talked about last week in the forgiveness framework, we talked about how a flagrant foul leaves you feeling exploited. And that's exactly how I felt. I felt like these friendships were one way. I felt that they only wanted me around if they could get something from me. I felt like a commodity to be used up and discarded when I no longer had a, something to give them. I felt like a big pen, right? Use it, it's done, you chuck it. Right? We felt, when we're fragrantly fouled, we feel violated. I felt like these weren't true friendships, that I had invested in something that wasn't real. But the biggest problem with a flagrant foul is that it leaves you changed. It changes the way you view the world. And from sixth grade on, I pretty much stopped trusting people. 
In my mind, if, if these people would betray me like they had betrayed me, then I couldn't trust them, and by association, I probably couldn't trust anybody. I built walls. I decided that nobody would know me well enough to hurt me. So I stopped being vulnerable. I stopped sharing details about myself. I'd have acquaintances, and I became the one-liner funny guy just so I was part of the conversations, right? I found out that if you say something funny and usually insulting, but you move it around enough, everybody's laughing enough where nobody gets too terribly offended. And that's the way I lived. And maybe my story resonates with some of you. Maybe some of you have been flagrantly fouled in your life. Maybe you've been exploited and violated, and maybe you've been changed as a result. Maybe just like me, seeds of unforgiveness have been planted in your life, and they sprouted and they produced a fruit that poisoned you spiritually. But today, like I said, I want to walk through the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50. And I want to walk through how he had these flagrant fouls put upon him but he figured out how to avoid the poisonous fruit that usually results. So if you'll flip with me, we're going to do a lot of paraphrasing. But if you flip with me, we're going, to, we're going to go through the story of Joseph. And for those of you not familiar, Joseph, he was the second youngest of 12 brothers. He was his father's favorite, and God had given him the ability to interpret dreams. And being the second youngest, he was somewhat naive, and he had a dream one night. He says, I had a dream. I was a, a stalk of wheat, and you guys, his brothers, were all stalks too, and you, you bowed down to me. And being naive, he decided it was a good idea to tell his brothers. He was already kind of resented for being the favorite, and now he's telling them he's gonna, like, they're going to bow to him, so they got kind of mad. And they came up with a plan. Hey, when we're out in the field working, we're going to chuck him in a cistern and kill him and get rid of him because he's ticking us off. So they tried to kill Joseph. Thinking better of it, in Genesis 37, 28, it says this, When Ishmaelite merchants came by, the brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Instead of killing him, they decided just to sell him to slavery and, and make some money. They usually have consequences. And those consequences usually take four different, different forms that we're going to represent by these chairs. We're going to call them the chairs of unfair because typically we're doing nothing wrong and yet unfair circumstances happen to us. In Joseph's life, he got sold into slavery. He could have sat in the chair of betrayal. See, he trusted his brothers. He trusted that they wouldn't kill him. He trusted that they wouldn't sell him into slavery. Pretty standard things that you trusted people. And he was betrayed. And he could sit here and he could stew. He could be angry. He could hold a grudge and all the things that we're tempted to do. All the things the devil wants us to do to take us off of the path that God created us to walk. But just like we're called to, Joseph finds a better way. Joseph says, if I can't trust people, I'm going to believe that I can trust God. And that even though my circumstances are not, he trusts God even though he's now a slave. And he allows God to use him in his current circumstances. And that's exactly what God does. As a slave to Potiphar in Egypt, God uses Joseph. He promotes him to the house manager. He's responsible for keeping track of all the servants and slaves, for keeping, taking care of them, for keeping the financials in order and running the house. He's being blessed by God even in a bad situation. But we find out that that doesn't last. 
You see, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph. And she makes advances toward Joseph. And it says this, and Genesis told servants were inside. She, being Potiphar's wife, caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hands and ran out of the house. He literally did everything right. The Bible tells us to flee from temptation, and he literally ran out of the house. He couldn't have done anything. Let me scream for help. He left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Blame. I don't know if you've ever been blamed for something that you didn't do. It's very easy to become bitter because the chair of betrayal, right, we chose to trust him, but the chair of blame, we're clean. Joseph literally, blame for something, I start playing the what if game. What if I'd have done this different? What if I'd have done this different? Would I have avoided these consequences if I would have done something different? What if, what if, what if? And I'm so busy living in the past that I'm robbed of my ability to be used by God in the present. And the devil succeeds in tempting me off of the path that God created me for. He tempts me to sit in the chair to take off some of that spiritual weight of these offenses and just stew playing the what-if game forever. But again, like Joseph, we're called to a better path. We're called to get out of the chair. And we're called to believe that God has a plan for our lives. And even if it's not what we planned, it is better than we planned even if we can't understand it. And we're called to believe in God's plan. And that's exactly what Joseph does. Joseph says, all right, now I went from a slave, now I'm a prisoner, but I trust that God has a plan for my life. I trust that God knows what he's doing, and we're going to go with it. And God blesses him in jail. God gives him authority in jail. He's put in authority over all the prisoners. He kind of runs the prison, right? Which is interesting. And God even blesses him and continues to allow him to interpret dreams. And one day, a baker comes to him and a cupbearer comes to him and they say, we've had dreams and we don't know what they mean. Can you help us interpret them? We know that you can do this. Joseph's like, God can help me. That's true. So the baker comes to him and says, this is my dream. What does it mean? And he's like, unfortunately, it means in three days, you're going to be executed for what you did. And I'm sure a little more hesitant, the cupbearer comes. What, what, what does my dream mean? Well, it means you're going to be reinstated as the cupbearer, and you're going to have access to Pharaoh, and you're going to give him his cup. And Joseph says, but I'm asking you, since you're going to have access to Pharaoh, somebody that can get me out of here, please tell him that I don't deserve to be here. Please put in a good word for me. Please get me out of here. And this is what it says happens. In Genesis 40, 23, it says this, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. This is where we're tempted, and Joseph was tempted with a third chair. The chair of bypass. You ever worked really hard for something? Have you ever put in all the work to attain something? You see, when I stopped trusting people, I became like a performance-based person. I said, if you don't like me for me, if you're going to betray me relationally, then you'll need me for what I can do. I will get the best grades. I will get skills. I will be able to do things. I will be needed because of what I can do. I will be a performance-based person. I will get my value based on what I can do. And you'll need me around. And that mindset, that shift, changed the way I look at things. And I got stuck in this chair. Maybe you've been stuck in the chair of bypass. I have a better resume. I have more experience. I should get that promotion. But you don't. I put in all the work on that project. I should get credit. But the boss takes it. 
I've done everything right, and yet my neighbor's got a house and a boat and a big car, and I'm in an apartment riding the bus. This should not happen. I should be in a better financial position. I'm in my upper 20s. I should be married by now. And you can play the game of shoulds just like Joseph could have played the game of shoulds. And you could be tempted to be knocked off of the path that God chose you to walk to again live in the past, to take a seat in the chair of bypass. But again, we're called like Joseph to choose a better way, and Joseph did. See, Joseph got out of the chair of bypass because he says, no, I will trust in God's timing. Whereas I think something should have already happened, God knows when it actually should happen. And I'll trust that God knows better than me, and I will trust in God's timing. And Joseph got out of the chair of bypass. And it took two years for Joseph to wait for God's timing. And two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh had a dream, and the cupbearer is like, oh, I know somebody that could interpret that. Some, some guy interpreted my dream, and I got out of jail, and everything he said happened, and nobody can interpret your dream right now, but, but this guy might be able to. So Pharaoh's like, yeah, get him out of jail, clean him up, bring him here. So they bring Joseph in front of Pharaoh. This is my dream, right? I got seven fat cows. I got seven skinny cows. Skinny cows, eat the fat cows. Good luck. This is my second dream. I got seven stalks of sweet-looking wheat that I want to eat. I got seven stalks of nasty wheat that, nasty, I don't know what happened there. Nasty wheat eats the good wheat. Good luck. What do you got for me? And Joseph's like, I can't do this, but God, God can interpret this. And Joseph says, you're going to have seven years of plenty, harvest like you've never had. But this can be followed by seven years of famine like you've never experienced. And a prisoner talking to a pharaoh gets bold enough to say, this is what I do in your situation, pharaoh. I would tax the plenty. I would store it up in storehouses. I would save it. And then I would ration it and sell it during the years of famine. It'll save your people and it'll make you a ton of money, pharaoh. And pharaoh's like, I like your thinking. I don't know why we put you in jail in the first place, but we're going to get you out. You get to be number two in the country, second only to me. Run everything. Figure out the taxes, figure out the storehouses, figure out the rationing, figure out everything. Just run it. And Joseph saves Egypt, and he saves a bunch of people in the region because he allowed himself to be used by God because he trusted God. He trusted that God had a plan. He trusted God's timing, and he arrived to a position of power. But unfortunately, the devil's not done tempting us. In Genesis 42, some of those people that came for food were Joseph's brothers. And now Joseph is confronted face-to-face with the people that originally offended him, people that originally betrayed him. And he's in a position of power. He can do whatever he wants. This is when we're tempted to sit in the chair of bitterness. When we're at the finish line of God's plan for us, when we've achieved everything that we set out to achieve, we have the power and the position that we have sought, and now we're face-to-face with the people that have hurt us. And the question becomes, can God trust us with our accusers? Can God trust us with the people that have hurt us? And Joseph could have looked at his brother and said, you sold me into slavery, good luck. There's the door. But Joseph does something else. Joseph gets out of the chair And in Genesis 45, 4 through 7, it says how. 
It says this, when Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me, and when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because I was, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. See, he didn't say that they sent him, God sent him. In verse 6, it continues, for two years now there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping, but God sent me, says it again, ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. See, the thing that allowed Joseph to get out of the chair of bitterness and the thing that we're called to do to get out of the chair of our bitterness is remember. Remember all the ways that God was with us, that God acted with us as we went through those offending situations. God gave Joseph the perspective to understand that all those trials that he went through were to prepare him for the position that God had for him originally. And by remembering, Joseph allowed that miracle that's needed to heal from a flagrant foul to happen. Joseph allowed himself to forgive his brothers, to move his entire family, the Israelites, over to Egypt to take care of them through the famine and to save God's people. Joseph allowed those seeds of unforgiveness to be dug up. He made choices to stay on God's path for his life. And I don't know where you are. I don't know emotionally where you find yourself in these chairs. Maybe you've been betrayed and you struggle to trust people. And today God's calling you to trust him instead. Maybe you've been blamed And you're playing the what-if game in your head, trying to figure out how your situation could be different, and God's calling you to understand that He has a plan, and even though it doesn't make sense, this is part of it, and it will be for your good. Maybe you've been bypassed, and you're playing that game of shoulds. This should happen, this should happen, this should happen, and it's not. And God's saying, no, 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 be patient, wait on my timing. You think this would have been good if it had happened, I'll tell you what will be great if you just wait. Or maybe you've achieved everything you've set out for and you're in the position of power and you find yourself bitter, unable to forgive those who have hurt you. And God's saying, remember how I used everything that happened in your life to prepare you for this moment. Forgive that person because it was for your good that all this happened. See, in my life, that original offense, that original flagrant foul that happened to me in sixth grade, I was betrayed. I put up those walls and I stopped trusting people. And if I was honest, I stopped trusting God for a while. Because of those walls, I stopped being vulnerable to people. I stopped initiating friendships. I stopped everything that people do to be social. And I expected people to just initiate with me. Why not? Right? I was performance-based. I could like, do stuff that people needed. But again, it just fed into that cycle. People didn't want me for me. They wanted me for what I could do. I was a commodity to be used and discarded. And I blamed them, and they blamed me right back. And I played the what-if game like nobody else. See, because I was performance-oriented, I had the resume. I had the experience, and I should have had that job. I should have had that promotion. I should be married. I should, 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 should. And I wasn't willing to wait for God's timing. And even when I got the promotion, even when I got whatever I wanted, it was hard for me to forgive. You see, I didn't camp out in any one chair. I was playing pinball between all four for decades. It's bouncing back and forth. 
and it's really hard to break that cycle. Joseph got out of it before it even started, but sometimes we get stuck in it, and then what do we do? Again, I don't know where you've been hurt or how you've been hurt, but I think there's three things that we're called to do. The first thing that we can do is we can understand and we can believe that no matter how bad our situation is, God is always with us. Isaiah 41.10 says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. No matter what's happened, God will never leave you. No matter how dark things feel and how far God feels away, he's not. He's right there. Second thing we can do is we can we can acknowledge the reality that even in unfair situation, God still calls us to do the kingdom work that he created us for. James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials, who does the work when it sucks. That a person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised those who love him. Joseph continued to do the kingdom work that God put him on earth for, no matter where he was at. As a slave, he served Potiphar. As a prisoner, he took care of those servants, those, slave, those uh, prisoners, and he interpreted those dreams. And in Egypt, a country he never wanted to be in, he saved an entire nation, and the Israelites as well. He decided to keep working even though it sucked. And the last thing that we're called to do, and the thing that literally healed me of my hurts, the things that got me out of the cycle, from bouncing around in the chairs of unfair, the thing that got me out, the thing that allowed me to cut off the plants that had grown from those seeds of unforgiveness, is we are called to serve when it sucks. You see, the miracle that is required to heal from a flagrant foul for me came through this, through serving when it sucks. And by God's grace, I got married at 29. A few years later, me and my wife were in church. We were sitting there. We were listening to the, the sermon, and somebody from World Vision came up, and they came to the stage, and they said, you know what? You should sign up for a half or full marathon. The world is hurting. There are kids in this world that are dying because of dirty water, and we can fix it. The solution's out there. We know what to do. We just need the funding, and we need people like you to take an active part in fixing the problem. So sign up for a half or full marathon, invite people to join you in the, in the journey, and for $50 a person, we can get clean water for them for life. And I said, no, that sounds horrible. That sounds horrible. I said, I played hockey for years. My knee's no good. It clicks, it hurts. I run a half mile, my whole leg feels like it's on fire, shooting pain up and down. It's, it's horrific. I said, I can't do this. Luckily, my wife, God gave me a much better person than myself, right? She laughs because she knows her. That's right. <laughs> Validating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. She said yes, her and her friend. I said, yeah, we could do a half marathon. Why not? And in support of my wife trying to be a good husband, I said, I'll come to the group runs and I'll push our daughter around in a stroller, aimlessly wander around the park that we meet at. I'm not going to run. 
bad knee, remember? I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to sign up for a race. I'll just, you know, support you. But the thing was that God started his miracle there. He exposed me to the first real community that I'd ever been a part of. You see, I did just aimlessly wander around the park with a stroller. I didn't run. I didn't do anything. But every week, I showed up with my wife, and I saw people get out of cars one at a time. And I saw people come for the first time, scared to death of the training plan for that day. What do you got to do? Walk 20 minutes. And they get out of the car like, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't know what's happening. And I saw people come around them, encourage them. I saw people that could run eight-minute miles be like, let's walk this together. They'd sacrifice their own training, their own goals to make sure that somebody felt like they could accomplish theirs. See, I saw people when they got hurt. I saw the community come around them and support them. I saw the community walk through people through the lows and the highs. I saw when people struggled to run alone during the midweeks. They organized midweek runs so that they could get their trainings done. I saw a community that said no runner will ever run alone unless they want to. Nobody is too fast or too slow. We're going to make sure that everybody is loved and cared for. So the next year, we've got the same invite. Do you want to sign up for a race? What did I say? No. No. I didn't sign up either. I said my knee still hurts. So some people gave me some advice. My knee's much better. I actually did start jogging with them a little bit near the end of the first year, but I didn't. See, it took me two years to sign up for a race. But the reality was it took me two years to accept the miracle that God had given me. It took me two years to allow God to knock down those walls of trust that I had, I had built to protect myself. It took me two years to allow myself to be vulnerable with people. It took me two years to step out of these chairs that I had been camped in for so long. And God worked a miracle in me through these people. Eventually I did sign up for a race. And I've run a few marathons. Well, I've jogged, walked, rarely ran. This is a picture of me last year. We did our, you know, COVID marathon where it was just World Vision people. That's me pushing a stroller. I pushed my six-year-old daughter in a stroller for a marathon. Trying to raise money, trying to help those kids that don't have access to clean water. And I could not be more excited today because today... Encounter is partnering with World Vision as well. And whereas you probably saw this coming, we are starting a World Vision running club here at Encounter. There is a massive problem with clean water around the world. In some countries, little kids have to walk four miles each way to get water for their families, and there's no access to clean water, so they get dirty water with diseases in it. And as a result, the stat that hurts me the most is the fact that 50% of kids in these villages don't live to the age of five. Can you imagine, as parents, saying, we should probably have two kids so that one of them survives? Like, nobody should have to do that. When the solution is so easy, you dig a hole, you get water from deep in the ground, and nobody dies. It only costs $50 a person so easy. And Encounter is going to partner with World Vision, the, the biggest non-governmental provider of clean water who knows how to do this and knows how to do it well so that we can 
serve others even while we're in pain. See, the fact is the best way to heal from our pain is to serve others through theirs. So create a soil in our lives where God can dig out those seeds that we've planted, where God can soften our hearts and where God can do the miracle of healing that we need. And the best way to do that that i found is through serving. And believe me, if you don't think you can do this, I know for a fact everybody in this room can at least walk a half marathon. It's like a day at the outlets. There's no time limit to any of the races that World Vision does. And you can just walk around the outlets for a mile and you probably get 13 miles or you can walk with a purpose. You can take steps so those kids don't have to. First race I did sign up for, I was dead last. So you'll know that you'll at least do better than I did because it was me and the motorcycle cop and he's like, you better pick it up. I think they're going to cut you off. But even being dead last, I had a whole bunch of World Vision people standing there cheering for me. Because they know that the finish line is not a race. The finish line is one more kid that doesn't have to do that walk at all. So if you find yourself sitting there saying, I can't do this, I just want to show you a one-minute video of a bunch of other people that said yes. A few testimonials that show the breadth because any age, any size, any athletic ability can do this. So let's watch our video. Ubuntu is very important to us. It basically means I am because we are. We are all here united, moving our feet to make a difference in the world. We don't run for ourselves, but we run for more, right? I run for World Vision to raise money to help the Kids, they carry this 20-pounder, some water for miles, and I do this running for them. It's unspeakable to think that a thousand children are dying every single day. It's not just my kids. It's not just somebody else's kids. It's our kids. I've seen moms who would do anything for their kids. They would, in essence, give up their entire life walking for water for their kids. That even makes them sick. And it's something that's solvable. Having some water allows the kids to be with their family, to be in school. It really is like it's changing whole communities because water is the basis for health in every way of life. There is something that you can do right now where you are and make a profound difference in somebody else's life. If you've never run before, World Vision has gotten thousands of people across the finish line. We have training plans that can get you from the couch to the course. And believe in yourself and believe that you are in capable hands with God and your community and that you can do this. Just do it. Uh, if I can do it. Just do it, seriously. <laughs> you can do it. You know, this whole thing started about four years ago. I quit smoking. I've had five knee surgeries. So it, this, is a, this is a total gift that God's given back to me. We need to do something with it. 
I mean, the idea of running a, even a half marathon at 60 years old was like, well, that's a crazy thing to do. When you get to that finish, you know, there's a group there, high fives and cowbells, and it's an awesome community. You might be thinking, I'm not a runner. I can't do this. You are not alone. You can conquer a marathon because we run together. And together, we can help end the global water crisis in our lifetime. You are because we are. And that's what I'm asking each of you into. Me and my wife already said yes. We already have an encounter team set up. You can go to the events page and sign up now. We're asking that we do this together. So my encouragement to you is this. No matter where you're at on the forgiveness spectrum, if you've been betrayed, if you've been blamed, if you've been bypassed, or if you have arrived and you find yourself bitter and still unable to forgive, remember God is always with you. Remember that God still calls us to do the work even though right now we feel like life sucks. And this week I'm especially calling to you to serve through the pain. Take the focus off of your pain and serve somebody else through theirs. If you're interested in joining the Encounter Team World Vision team and you're virtual, this applies to you too. Text the word ENCOUNTER to 44888 and we'll get you all kinds of information and help you sign up. If you're in person, we got a tent outside of the exit. Stop by. Give us 10 minutes. Ask your questions. Voice your concerns. Figure out if this is something God's calling you to do. I believe it is. And if you're sitting there like I was, this is absolutely not for me. I have all the in the world to say no. Stop by the table anyway. Voice your concerns. See if they're valid. And if at the end of the 10 minutes you still think it's not your chance, you can still make a difference. You can still serve these kids by sponsoring one, and we'll have some sponsorship packets at the table as well. And you can change the life of one of these kids today. I don't want any one of us to say no to something that God wants to say yes to. If you hear even the littlest whisper in the back of your mind that says this is for you, go to that table. I pray that you follow it. Today could be your day. This series could end with you finally figuring out how to forgive the people that have hurt you by serving the people that are hurt the most. Will you pray with me? Dear God, this has been a rough series. We are not trained to forgive people. We don't know how. But we know that we should. And last week we learned that it's, it's a lot more difficult than we thought. And that most of the times we have to wait on, on you for, for a miracle. And as we try to heal, it's so easy to get stuck in one of these chairs of unfair 
to be betrayed, to be blamed, to be bypassed, to remain bitter. We pray that you help us like you helped Joseph to get out of these chairs. If we've been betrayed, pray that, we help, that you help us to trust you even when we can't trust other people. If we've been blamed, we pray that you help us to trust in your plan even if it doesn't match our plan. If we've been bypassed, pray that you help us to trust in your timing even when it's not as fast as we would like. And if we've arrived and yet we are bitter, we pray that you help us to remember all the ways you've been faithful, all the ways that you have prepared us for where we're at, and you give us the perspective that it takes to allow you to do a miracle in our life to forgive those that have hurt us. I pray that you help us at a very deep level know that no matter what's going on, you are always with us. but that even when we're hurting at our worst, that you still call us to keep working for you and to do the kingdom work that you call us to. And I pray this week that you help us to serve through our pain, to take the focus off of our hurts and to help others through theirs. I pray that you call everyone in this room to stop by that table, to learn more about World Vision and the work that they do and to join the team. To serve literally the least of these in this world through pain that we can't imagine and that they are not responsible for it all. I pray that you help us to forgive unconditionally as your son forgave us. We thank you and we love you and it's your name that we pray. Amen.